Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Our guest today takes us across the whole spectrum from theory right through to practice. He has fundamentally changed personalized precision medicine by developing and getting approval for the first ever N of 1 trial, a drug study involving just one person. This trial was an example of hyper-personalized medicine. Our guest created a drug for one child only, Mila, a young girl with a very rare genetic disorder called Batten's disease, where after a period of normal development, a child will start to regress, losing speech, coordination, and vision. Mila was a bright, adventurous girl up till the age of three years old. Rare disorders currently affect 30 million people in the U.S. They're rare because each disorder affects only very few people, but there are a lot of these types of disorders. 80% are genetic, and most have no treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Timothy Yu, a biochemist, a neuroscientist, a pediatrician, and a geneticist. We ask him, how and why did he get the drug for one child from the geneticist's bench to her bedside in just one year? And what's the future of precision medicine? Dr. Tim Yu, welcome to Theory and Practice. Thanks so much for coming today. Thank you, Anthony. It's great to be here. I've known you for many years, actually going back to when I was a medical student and uh, you were a postdoc. But recently, your career has really hit an inflection point where you did something that many describe as, as one of the most innovative clinical research studies in rare diseases of all time. Uh, it was running an N of 1 trial for Mila Makovich. I was wondering if we could start off and tell us a little bit of the story of how that came to be, how you came to know Mila and her family, and how you got the idea to, to run this innovative new trial. Absolutely. So uh, this story begins back in uh, 2017, at the beginning of 2017. I was a assistant professor. I was running my laboratory at Boston Children's Hospital. We were building up this group that I had put together to understand the causes of rare disease. And one evening, I sat down at the dinner table and my wife, uh, who is also a physician, she said, hey, Tim, take a look at this Facebook post that our friend Yen Lin just forwarded. And I said, no, what are you talking about? And she showed me this Facebook post and it was a post on the Physicians Moms Group of Massachusetts. This is a group of uh, physicians who share referrals, stories about work-life balance, occasionally uh, medical consultations and so forth. And someone had posted a story about a young family in Colorado who had a six-year-old girl who was in need of some help. And it described how she had just been worked up at Colorado Children's Hospital by Dr. Austin Larson. And she had been diagnosed with a really terrible disease called Batten disease. And this was a neurodegenerative condition that is progressive and rapidly fatal and it had no treatments. And she sounded like someone who needed help from a geneticist. And they were looking for a lab that might be able to provide whole genome sequencing to them on an expedited basis to confirm this terrible diagnosis. 
uh, because if it were correct, they wanted to find a scientist who could help work with them on gene therapy stat. So that's how we heard about this case. And I went and, and looked at this post and there was a link to the family's website and they had posted a video describing their diagnostic odyssey, which had been going on for three years at that point. And they had gotten so close, they had gotten this clinical diagnosis, but they couldn't find the mutation that was actually causing the condition. So that was the, the last missing piece. And so that's how this all started. Uh, my lab actually was a lab that was built from the ground up to provide genetic diagnoses, genomic diagnoses for rare conditions. This is a very rare, rare condition. And we decided that uh, we wanted to try to help. You're both a practicing neurologist who sees patients with rare genetic diseases. Uh, and then you also have a lab that does research on that. That's correct. Right. So, so my laboratory was uh, a small laboratory with perhaps six people in it. Um, and we were looking for interesting problems and looking for uh, mutations that, uh, that were perhaps difficult to find or for patients who had had a difficult experiences working their way through the medical system to try and find a diagnosis. And, and so you, you had this group of six people, and then through Facebook, you met this young girl and her family. And I'm wondering if, if you can tell us a little bit about what you were looking for and what you were able to find um, using all these techniques and, and that you developed and all the skills that you'd gathered around yourself. So in a way, we had been looking for uh, individual personal patient uh, opportunities. Uh, uh, in the work prior leading up to our meeting, Mila, we had done a lot of work on large populations. We had worked with the autism community, uh, looking at uh, data sets of hundreds or thousands of families at a time, and working with data very uh, at a distance, where the data had already been uh, gathered and collected and was sitting in large repositories. And this was you know, data in the abstract. We were increasingly looking, though, for ways that I could bridge that kind of conceptual and important genetics work with practical application, trying to find opportunities to translate that knowledge into medical practice. And so what we found interesting about this particular case is that this was a, a young woman who had been on a, a genetic diagnosis odyssey for three years, uh, had been unable to obtain one. Eventually, expert opinions at her uh, hospital had led to this diagnosis of an ultra-rare condition, that disease. Her particular subtype had only 70 patients described in the literature. And what was interesting to us was that she had what looked sounded like a, a sound clinical diagnosis, but the actual smoking gun genetic mutation was difficult to find. And that then in 2017 and re remaining today now is a really interesting problem that geneticists face, this problem of missing mutations or missing heritability. Um, those are situations where we've learned that there are often unusual, interesting mutations underneath it, mutations that are hard to pick up, that they're, uh, they're tricky in some way, that they're not captured by existing sequencing technologies, or they require a particularly interesting analytic method to actually recognize them, uh, or they may interest, require interesting biology to interpret them. In addition to the human component, a young child with a devastating condition, that was also the the academic challenge that this focused. So it was it really hit hit us on both fronts. You couldn't find uh, the genetic lesion underlying hair disease. What happened next? So uh, we figured that we had an opportunity to, tr to try to solve this because uh, whole genome sequencing was a technique that had been shown to 
have many advantages, many technical advantages over previous generations of uh, partial genome sequencing. That whole genome sequencing is able to capture these types of unusual mutations that were that the field was learning about, unusual structural mutations that uh, might reflect something more complicated. So a, a typical mutation, that, like the easiest type of mutation to describe, of course, is like a single letter change in the genome, when A to a C or a G to a T or whatever it may be. And then more complicated mutations might include areas where multiple letters in a row are removed and deleted or inserted. And then more complicated beyond that are structural mutations where there might be you know, strings of letters that are flipped or then rearranged in much more complicated ways that are difficult to, to describe, but easier to sketch out, um, that have to do with the topology of the sequence in some way. And so we set out to uh, use whole genome sequencing to see if something like that might be occurring in her, uh, if that might be the, the, uh, the missing mutation that had not been picked up by standard clinical approaches. So we ended up sequencing her uh, using these comprehensive whole genome sequencing techniques and looking to see if we could find uh, the, this hidden mutation. And uh, at first, standing, we applied all the standard algorithms and struck out. We couldn't find simple insertions or deletions. Um, and we began looking through the data at the raw read level. There are ways to visualize the data uh, graphically. And we could hone in on the particular locus, the particular gene that uh, the clinicians had pinpointed as the most likely cause. And we found something there that uh, was not easily captured by the existing algorithms for trying to uh, automate the, the detection of mutations uh, that uh, eventually led us to conclude that something very unusual had happened. And, uh, and that ended up being the, the clincher in the case that, that uh, provided the answer that, that they, they had been missing so far. What was the moment when you started to realize that maybe I could make a drug just for Mila? Yeah, so um, this was a, uh, a a really unusual situation. Um, so for, uh, we had to ask ourselves, well, what's this? What's the sequence doing here? How is it uh, impacting the uh, the function of this gene? We inferred that the only possible way it could be influencing this. Well, it could be changing the transcription of the gene, or it could be changing the uh, uh, any number of different like subtler things like the polydenylation of the gene. Uh, but we uh, eventually hypothesized and proved that it was altering the splicing of the gene. And so we began asking ourselves, so was there a way that we could possibly block that from happening? Because when we looked at the situation, uh, it had a lot of similarities to a couple of other very recently described and really clever uh, therapeutic strategies for genetic conditions. Uh, one of these is, an, is something called an exon skipping strategy uh, that was used for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And if I remember right, back in uh, March 2017, when we were looking at our patient sequence, there were um, New York Times articles even, not just even the scientific journals, but in the popular press, New York Times articles talking about this really remarkable uh, approach called exon skipping that was being used to uh, try to uh, rescue some patients with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy by using uh, an antisense oligo to sit on top of abnormal splice sites to block them and inhibit them and to allow normal splicing to occur. Um, we read about that and said, huh, that's actually has a lot of mechanistic parallels uh, to our patient situation. 
we also were reading about uh, a uh, another splice modulating therapeutic strategy called Spinraza, a uh, drug that's made for patients with a neurodegenerative condition that presents in infancy called spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and Spinraza was this novel drug that has was just hitting phase two and phase three trials around the time when we met our patient. Uh, and it also changed the splicing of a critical gene using so this, this thing called an antisense oligonucleotide to uh, affect that change. And reading about those two case examples that had been uh, tested and developed by scientists and pharmaceutical companies over five, 10 years prior, we began uh, incubating the idea that um, at least thematically that ought to work for our patient. And thinking and reading about the mechanism, um, it became increasingly not just a theoretical exercise, but it said, well, actually the experiments that they actually used to design those drugs are not that difficult. Those are experiments that, that I could run in my lab. And I began sketching out on a piece of paper how long we th- it w- I would estimate it might take to, to replicate that process for our patient. And it looked like it's something that could be done potentially in a matter of months. And I began thinking, why shouldn't we try to do this? Why couldn't we try to do this? Is it possible that this could be done in time to actually help our patient? So, um, so keep on going, Tim. Uh, what happened next? So um, we began testing this idea. We, uh, we said, um, look, we haven't worked with this class of therapeutic before. We haven't designed antisense oligonucleotides before. But uh, standing on the shoulders of scientists who had preceded us, following the published trail in the literature, uh, we sketched out uh, what we thought we could do to um, manufacture these ourselves, to design them ourselves, to manufacture them. Uh, we, we began setting up the assays we needed to actually test them. Uh, we asked our patient for a skin sample so we could get her cells cultured and growing in our laboratory. And, uh, and then we began doing this. Um, this was, you know, we had met our patient in January of 2017. We had come to the diagnosis in around March of 2017. And we began collecting all the reagents necessary to run our experiments and had them in hand by about June. And then we began putting everything together. We began putting the oligonucleotide designs that we had designed and then had a a small manufacturing company synthesize at small scale um, and uh, ship to us. And so we began applying those to cells that we had cultured from her beginning in July and August of that summer. And we were really gratified to be able to quickly demonstrate that uh, these drugs that we had rationally designed were uh, appeared to be able to block the abnormal splicing that was occurring in her cells. And we thought, oh, that sounds good. You know, and we, this normal splicing that was now reoccurring was a, a normal splice event that if we had done the theory right, should give us uh, a normal functioning gene product again. And so we said, well, how do we actually prove that that's actually helping the cell, that that's going to rescue the cell. And we began uh, calling around to colleagues and we identified uh, a wonderful collaborator at uh, Northwestern, Joe Mazzulli, who is a lysosomal biologist and a cell biologist and an expert in a number of different assays that we thought that could be helpful for a patient. And so we said, Joe, I'm going to send you uh, some cells from a patient of ours. Um, and I'm going to send you a couple of tubes. I'm not going to tell you what's in the tubes, but I'd like you to apply them to the patient cells and tell, tell us what you think about lysosomal functioning in these cells. 
And so he uh, willingly uh, participated in this unusual experiment. And a month or two later was able to tell us that one of the tubes really seemed to remarkably boost the, the level of lysosomal functioning in her cells. And that was the tube that had our lead compound in it. And so his experiments in a blinded fashion really uh, gave us a lot of confidence that this was not only helping at the RNA level, but was actually helping at the functional biological level too. And this was by September, October of 2017, uh, 10 months after we had first met our patient. And at this point, we realized we really had something on our hands here. We had replicated um, quickly uh, in, in an academic setting, many years of the pharmaceutical work that had gone in to develop these drugs that were, that were now FDA approved for spinal muscular atrophy and so forth. And so we began thinking, no, we really have got the, found, the scientific foundation for a treatment here. How do we actually begin to get approval to try to offer this? Can I, can I ask, uh, what I've noticed is you're, as you're spelling out the timeline, you're doing it at a pretty granular level, January, then March, then June, then July. So, I mean, time seems to be really important here. Could you maybe give us a sense of, of why exactly, you know, you're zooming in on, on basically a timescale of weeks at a time, which is not normally how biological science progresses? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's true. Most projects that we take on, we take on with a, you know, a two to five year time scale. Um, but we were doing all of this work from the very beginning, even with the, the genetic diagnostic workup. Um, we did this with a real eye towards the fact that this was a, a family uh, with a patient who was, uh, had a really uh, rapidly progressive and horrible disease. And this is a condition that... Um, in our six-year-old patient, at the time that she presented, she was losing her vision. She was losing her ability to walk. She was becoming very uncoordinated. Um, she had gone from being able to speak in, in chapters, uh, not to mention paragraphs, down to just a few sentences and then a few words, um, and was losing her words too. And as a neurologist and as a clinician, sort of marrying kind of the academic timescale with what you see in patients like this who will uh, literally decline over a series of visits within a year, They'll go from very functional and interactive little children to having dozens of seizures per day and, and being unable to do some of the of their uh, basic uh, childhood uh, capabilities, like losing some of these basic childhood capabilities. For this to be worth it, we would have to move very fast. This is a condition that we knew would be terminal in just a few short years from the point of where she was when we met her. And more than that, that she would lose quality of life uh, on a monthly basis. So when we gathered our team together to talk about uh, what we were trying to accomplish here, even from the genetic diagnosis standpoint, we said, we're going to run this like a fire drill because there is a patient on the other end and we're going to try to provide first answers as quickly as possible. So what was the moment when you said, we can actually make a drug for this one patient? What were the kind of series of insights that led you to believe that this would be possible at a manufacturing level, at a regulatory level, and at a clinical level? So that's a great question, Anthony. And um, some would say it's a pipe dream to, to, to do this type of thing. But in our case, though, uh, we had the benefit of this uh, these prior experiences. A, a little bit of backdrop here. If you, um, One of the first things that we did was to characterize... Uh, the appearance of, of Mila's cells in a dish 
And what we found is that when you um, culture them and then uh, take uh, careful electron microscopy images of their ultrastructure, you would find that they were riddled with these uh, white vacuoles, these white bubbles that appear in the cytoplasm, um, representing abnormal storage material that comes from the inability of their lysosomes to clear normal cellular waste. I remembered uh, being shocked when uh, we um, got images from our collaborator showing the effects of treatment with our oligonucleotide. Just 48 hours of treatment with our oligonucleotide was able to make those abnormal storage vacuoles essentially melt away. And they were nearly indistinguishable from the wild type just after 48 hours of treatment with this, this uh, RNA splicing correcting drug. That was... That was a shocker. I mean, I think that you know, science usually doesn't work like that, that you get experience, data like that on the first try. Um, and at that point, we said, look, this looks really, really effective. We're going to we have to find a way to get this into her. It took a lot of uh, more, a lot more work to actually do that, to take something that was as biologically promising in that and then navigate manufacturing and then uh, safety studies, and then the regulatory permissions, getting certainty that that was actually going to work. Well, we had to create that process. And we, we called up colleagues. We were introduced to folks at the Oligonucleotides Therapeutic Society to allow us to talk to the CMC specialists and the regulatory specialists and the toxicologists and everybody that we needed to to navigate those last critical uh, pharmaceutical grade uh, steps to justify a first in human study. And that process it happened over an accelerated time period with lots of hastily arranged phone calls over a period of two months, well, from September to around November of 2017. And I'd say by mid-November, we drafted a plan to navigate all of those necessary technical steps, the manufacturing, the safety testing, and so forth. And then it was a matter of actually just doing it and getting and showing the data to the FDA. Our manufacturing plan went into practice uh, right around Thanksgiving of that year. And uh, manufacturing was complete just uh, about 10 days before Christmas. The drug was then shipped off to a laboratory that ran our safety studies. And we began getting data back from them right around uh, the new year. And it wasn't until we began seeing that data and we began getting back the quality control data assuring us that the clinical grade manufacturing had gone well, that we began to breathe and say, look, we've actually got sufficient evidence and sufficient quality product and sufficient uh, safety data from our uh, animals to uh, be able to proceed here. That was around mid-January when all of that came together and we were able to get permission from the FDA to, to start. So, okay, so now everything is all set up. You feel like you have a drug that will actually impact a patient. You feel like you've had the preliminary conversations with the FDA and you see a path forward. So um, we received permission from, uh, to begin dosing our patient uh, in, in mid-January. And uh, we gave... Her, her first dose uh, on January 31st uh, of 2018, just about a year after we first met her. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was definitely a, um, a, a nervous moment, an exciting moment for all of us. We had put so much into this 
dozens of people had stepped up to help us. And that first day was, it turned out blissfully boring. We gave her a small dose, three and a half milligrams, and we waited for something terrible to happen or something wonderful to happen. And, and actually she spent the night in the hospital and we chatted with her afterwards and she was smiling and happy and her parents were thrilled. And uh, I went home and, and slept that night and we said, look, we did it. We navigated all of that and, and first dose in. And we carefully escalated the dose over the next six months. And uh, we were giving her doses every two weeks or so. Each time we would uh, incrementally inch it up towards our ultimate uh, target. And that also thankfully went really, really well. And then we sat back and began watching the data come in. We were listening closely to, from, to the family to uh, uh, hear reports from how they felt that she was doing. And, and on the uh, parallel track, we were also tracking uh, metrics for how her disease was progressing. One of those major metrics was her seizures. Unfortunately, by the time that we started her, her treatment, uh, she was having about 30 seizures per day. And over that six, first six months, um, as we tracked her seizures, we were hugely gratified to see that her seizures actually began to respond. They actually began to shorten and they began to, uh, to drop in frequency. And um, by the end of the six months, she, her 30 seizures had declined to uh, between zero and 10 seizures per day, often really more typically zero and five seizures per day. They had gone from lasting greater than a minute to being incredibly fleeting, just really lasting just a few seconds at a time. And uh, we were, uh, well, stunned, I think. We, no one expected a response like that. We were thrilled to see this happening. And it was a, a sign that she was uh, responding and that it was doing what we had really barely dared to hope. So, you know, in a one-year sprint from first meeting the patient, you, you give the first bit of this novel drug. And in six months, there are days that this patient has that might be considered normal with zero seizures or with very few that are super fleeting. Does Mila keep taking the drug? How do things unfold over time from this initial six-month period of perhaps a return to normalcy? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, that was it was a pretty stunning six months for sure. And at the end of six months, um, we had finished our dose ramp up and we were now in the maintenance phase. We were giving her this uh, medicine on a regular basis. Over the next year or so, um, we followed her. Um, and I'd say for the first year or two, um, from a long-term standpoint, uh, we were seeing promising signs. However, by the end of year two, it became clear that uh, despite the uh, acute effects in the first six months, that the overall neurodegenerative process hadn't completely stopped. And on a longer time scale, the uh, other features of this condition besides the seizures, but uh, her overall responsiveness. Um, there's, a, there's a movement disorders component to this, uh, a dystonia component of this. It became clear to us that they were uh, they had not stopped. They were that they were also continuing to advance. And so, uh, while um, our initial success was really remarkable to all of us, I think um, by two and a half years, and then by about three years. We did unfortunately see that uh, she had some continued signs of uh, brain volume loss uh, 
and we had not completely uh, altered, we had not completely stopped the course of disease. We believe we had um, inflected it, but uh, but not to the point where uh, loss um, was completely reversed. And then I think um, I'm sad to say that uh, in uh, February of this year, uh, 2021, um, some four years after we met her, um, she did uh, eventually reach a point where um, that uh, her uh, responsiveness to her family, the, the, the types of uh, inter the, the happy interactions that she was having previously um, had become more and more infrequent. And uh, in working with uh, the palliative care team, uh, we and the family all had agreed upon a plan to um, switch to a comfort care mode. And she uh, peacefully passed away in uh, February of, of this year. I'm sorry to hear that. One, one thing that, um, you know, Mila's mother, Julia, has done is to build a foundation in Mila's honor to raise money to, you know, fund the treatment. And from what I've been able to glean, she thinks that this is actually a, a story of hope. Although this is the, the first patient of this type to receive this kind of N of one treatment, perhaps more will come in the future. And I'm curious how you see it. Is, is this a story of, of hope to you? Thanks for asking, Alex. This uh, this absolutely is a story of hope for us. I think that to us, we're incredibly invigorated by this experience, and it uh, to us it is just the very very beginning. I think that this opportunity, these tools that are now available to us, the first beginning with the ability to arrive at a, an incredibly precise diagnosis through whole genome sequencing to find very quickly the root cause of uh, children's uh, conditions like this. Uh, and then the availability of technologies like antisense oligonucleotides that can be rapidly deployed, designed, validated, and then manufactured to address these root causes. This is an incredibly powerful idea. It's not a new idea. It's been the driving force behind folks uh, pursuing, say, MD-PhDs you know, for 30 years. Like the idea that you could meet a patient, diagnose them, design a drug, and treat them. Uh, but in 2021, it's actually happening that this these tools have reached a level of maturity where you can actually uh, do this. Now, not every patient is going to be immediately eligible for these types of therapies. And these therapies are going to have to go through a significant amount of maturation and improvement, and, and the delivery system is going to have to be polished. But it's a beginning, and there will for certain uh, be bumps on the road. But just the excitement, the ability, the, the idea that, that, or the proof that it is now within our grasp to be able to learn how to use these technologies and to apply them to more patients. That, that's really, it's, this has been a hugely motivating experience for us. So Tim, you know, with the last five minutes, maybe you can close out with a little bit more on where is this going? You know, the FDA has now issued many guidance papers. I would imagine, and you'll tell me, 
that there are probably lots of physicians coming to you saying, uh, I want to set up an end of one therapy clinic. How do you train the next generation of clinicians that can do this? And then finally, you happen to use an antisense oligonucleotide, but I can imagine lots of other therapeutic modalities, whether they be gene therapy or genome editing, might also benefit from this end of one approach. So where is this going? I'd love to, Anthony. So this is, uh, we're really excited about where this is going. I think that what we're seeing is that the ability to, to offer these types of treatments, initially on an investigational basis, but just this this emerging capability is uh, for sure going to change attitudes and change the way that we approach these patients. I think that it's going to put pressure like there's not, not been pressure before, not like there hasn't been pressure before, but it's going to put renewed pressure on improving the practice of genomic diagnosis. Right now, the fact that it took this patient three years to uh, reach a diagnosis is historically understandable, but it's going to be completely unacceptable very, very soon. Arguably, it's completely unacceptable today. The reality is that we have the ability, the technical ability to arrive at diagnoses for these patients in a matter of even weeks to months. And the sooner we actually realize that opportunity, the uh, the sooner more patients will uh, be eligible for these types of attempts. Um, the second point, we'll also have to invest a lot in the training of, of physicians to not only recognize the opportunities, but to execute the opportunities. This has been done and published once, but there are going to be many more examples of this that will be showing up in the literature and some of them soon. And there are going to have to be folks who are trained in how to apply these techniques to more and more patients. And so the idea that you will have foundations uh, and NIH and hospitals supporting a new class of interventional geneticists and genomicists who you know, are not just expert in figuring out what the child has, but also doing something about it. I think that's an exciting new trend that uh, has already started and will, will continue. The system itself is going to have to evolve to accommodate this kind of activity. Uh, the traditional paradigms of um, taking one drug at a time and sending it uh, through, say, VC funding, uh, licensing to a biotech or a pharma, those models don't really easily apply here when you're working on timescales that uh, are determined really by nothing other than the, the, the need of the patient who's right in front of you. Uh, it's also going to have, have to be a much more less expensive system to be able to navigate this at the individual level. But that'll be a really exciting thing to see how it evolves because uh, uh, one thing that you know, the manufacturing uh, capabilities are going to have to be shrunken down to be able to be applied at individual patient levels. The regulatory approval process is going to have to shrink down. The safety assessment is also going to have to shrink down. All of these things that uh, are part of this general trend that um, as we're able to use the scientific tools and we find that they actually work best when customized to individuals, then um, these tools, whether they're antisense oligonucleotides or CRISPR base editing or prime editing, they all demand this process to change. And so I think that's, that's what the next exciting five, 10 years are going to be to, to, to see how the system responds to those scientific needs. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming and joining us today. You know, in my time as a clinician, I don't know that I've seen many, if any, efforts that are as visionary as this. It just feels like this could be the step towards a whole new approach to developing new therapies for rare diseases. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and telling us about it. What a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed my time here. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. It was really nice talking today. Huge thanks to Dr. Timothy Yu. We always take time at the end of each episode, in the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago, to discuss a big problem, a nail, and possible solutions, the hammers, inspired by what we just heard. Anthony, do you have um, a hammer or a nail to talk about this week? You know, today I'll go back to my usual and focus more on nails. Uh, And as we were listening to Tim, I was really inspired by how we live in the golden age of the diagnosis and treatment of rare diseases. You know, when you look back at the last 30 years, there's been a revolution in our ability to understand the genetic basis of rare diseases. And then also a whole new industry created around creating treatments for them. So, you know, I think it's worth going back in time. Rare diseases are often so-called Mendelian, which is to say that they're due to one mutation in one gene. And in the mid 80s, um, a pair of geneticists at Children's Hospital Boston cloned the first human disease genes, which is to say they were able to identify the stretch of DNA that definitively caused the gene. And it was for two diseases. One was muscular dystrophy, and that was led by Lou Kunkel. And the other was chronic granulomatous disease uh, by Stu Orkin. And these were both announced at a Cold Spring Harbor conference and then appeared in the same Journal of Nature. And it set off a flood in our ability to be able to find diagnoses um, and map human disease genes. Now, for a long time, the way that this worked was by finding large families where the disease traveled in the family and collecting DNA samples from each of those individuals Uh, and forming the pedigrees and doing kind of what you learn in high school biology to be able to kind of um, look at recombination events and narrow down the part of the the gene that was actually likely to hold uh, the mutation. Um, So this is the way it proceeded from about 1986 to about 2009, 2010. Uh, And at that moment, there was a revolution in our ability to do uh, DNA sequencing. And so Tim talked about this a little bit today, and it's uh, he used the phrase next generation DNA sequencing. So I thought I'd start out this portion by uh, discussing a little bit what that technology breakthrough was, and then what it meant for rare diseases, and then kind of close out a little bit about what it means for the therapeutics uh, of rare diseases. So kind of kicking off, uh, there was a company in Britain called Selexa that had a new idea on how to do DNA sequencing. And it was so-called sequencing by synthesis, where you have a piece of DNA and you have the ability to extend it one letter at a time. And each letter has a fluorescent tag of a different color. And so as letters are added to the growing piece of DNA, I can read off uh, what the letter that was added. And this was kind of pioneered in the UK by someone named Shankar Bala Subramanian. And then in Boston, George Church and Jay Shinduri had a very similar kind of approach. Um, they called it Polony. And, you know, I remember being a graduate student when these papers came out 
And then actually I was in my last year of medical school when the first generation of Celexa machines uh, first rolled in the door. And of course, Celexa was eventually bought by Illumina and this chemistry and approach is still the foundation of all that they do. Uh, and so what is the deliverable that you get from these new sequencers? So what you get are strings of letters that are about 200 letters long. Uh, and they often come in pairs of two to 250 letters that correspond to both ends of a bigger piece of DNA. And what the sequencers did was produce lots of, like on a scale that we've never seen before. And there are some of these classic graphs that show the cost of DNA sequencing versus the uh, decrease in the cost of compute. And especially for a period of around a decade from around 2008 to around 2018, the cost of DNA sequencing was falling way faster than the cost of compute. Uh, and it was because, you know, we just had the ability to kind of put more and more DNA pieces onto a slide and image it. And the amount of data that they kicked off was great. Now, there are two kind of challenges that we face with these new technologies. So the first is um, the strings that you get off the machine are kind of short. Um, they're only about 250 letters. And if the genome looked like random text, that would be fine. But the problem is that the genome doesn't look like random text. There are a lot of pieces that are really, really repetitive where, you know, like I always think back to the movie, The Shining, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And he writes it over and over again. Your genome has lots of sections where uh, a run of letters uh, will be repeated over and over again. And so it can be very hard with these short strings to be able to map them and identify, you know, what the, the text is really saying. And then the other challenge that they have is that they have mistakes in what they the information they give us. But the errors from the sequencer are not distributed at random, but tend to clump up and in one place. Um, and so that also makes it hard because uh, you have to do a lot of massaging to get error modes and calibrate them and make sure that you understand what the real probability is of a mutation at this place. And a lot of hard work in a period around 2010 and, and the years afterwards to get the algorithms right to really give a great level of accuracy. What it meant for rare disease uh, diagnoses, however, was something transformative, where instead of having to assemble a huge family um, of a pedigree of people in order to map a disease gene, I could just take the DNA from one person and sequence it. And often it was possible to be able to filter down and find the mu disease mutation just from what that one individual. And uh, again, not always, and it relies on also having lots and lots of other people that are normal to filter out the mutations that are almost certainly non-pathogenic. But um, we went from needing to have generations of people to be able to do it with just one disease. And suddenly we're in this moment in time where there are about 5,000 rare diseases that have been described. And there are serious efforts going around the world to find the genetic basis of essentially all of them. You know, right now we're, I believe, around 2,500 or so mapped, but it's not crazy to think that over the next decade or so, we'll close the book on Mendelian genetics. Um, and I think this is just such an incredible time to be working in this area. And, and without it, the story that Tim said today wouldn't be possible. Yeah, you 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 mentioned this timeline of of a, I mean, what I think it is, at least from my view, is a really 
beautiful and moving confluence of the advancements in technology with the needs of patients. And the needs have always been there. And you, you mentioned this timeline from 2008 to 2018, where the cost of sequencing is falling. And that's kind of a, a prosaic observation. It's just cost less money to sequence genomes. But then Mila's story, or at least t- you know Tim's um, entrance into the story is in 2017, at kind of the end of this march of progress. And although there are people almost certainly uh, like Mila that have been with us for all of our history, uh, that moment in time seems quite special. I mean, exactly. You know, the idea that suddenly the ability to have a patient be in a clinic and be able to have their genome sequenced and receive a molecular diagnosis. I mean, this is a turning point in medicine and our ability to care for patients with rare diseases. Now, of course, being able to make a diagnosis is incredibly important. But, you know, what we really care most about is creating a new generation of therapeutics. And here again, this same period from kind of the, you know, let's call it right around 1990 or a few years before today has been kind of a golden era of rare disease drug development as well. I have to ask, Anthony, um, it's expensive to develop a drug. And one tension I, I see here is uh, rare diseases, by definition, something that very few people have. It doesn't make it any less worthy of attention and treatment. But you know, given how expensive it is to make a drug, how does it work out that large companies are incentivized to build a treatment for a disease that maybe only 100 people in the world have? Yeah. So, and again, there's a, a fascinating confluence of things that happened at the regulatory level at the payment level, at the technology level, and at the business level. And maybe let me try and walk through each of them one at a time. So first was the Orphan Drug Act, which was passed in 1983, which made a real effort to incentivize people to go after rare disease drug development. And this was coupled with the creation of a lot of new therapies um, and in breakthroughs and new therapies that we could go after. So some of the initial people to work on making drugs for rare diseases was um, Henry Termier and his colleagues at Genzyme, who went after a disease called Gaucher's disease, which was a lysosomal storage disorder. You know, Tim on the show today, ironically, was also talking about a disease with a lysosomal component. And they were able to do enzyme replacement therapy. And that was kind of a breakthrough in a new therapeutic modality that did a lot for making that disease on the table. And what also happened was that payers started to embrace the idea that a transformative therapy that has real meaningful impact on patients' lives should be reimbursed at a very different level um, than a therapy for a common disease like high cholesterol or high blood pressure which has a modest effect on relative risk reduction. And so suddenly, you know, it became reasonable to make drugs that were reimbursed at a price point of several hundred thousand dollars a year, which was very different than what had gone before it. And in fact, actually, the drug companies started to realize that in many ways, it was in their best interest to really prioritize rare diseases, because you could run a much smaller trial 
Like if you're going to run a trial, to, as we heard about with Rory Collins, to prevent heart attacks, you probably have to get something like 20,000 people and follow them for five years. Whereas if you have a transformative new therapy for a rare disease, I mean, first of all, there may not be 20,000 patients in the world, but often you can run the trial with hundreds of patients uh, and actually often for a shorter period of time. And so it really was this um, constellation of changes in regulation and reimbursement in a whole new uh, generation of startups that got born uh, in the wake of that and new technological modalities. And in many ways, I think what we're starting to see is that this trend will continue. And in some ways, I almost wonder if Tim Yu's work today will be the start of maybe the third era of, of rare diseases, where now we can start to run N of one trials. Um, and we also have a whole new set of innovative new therapies like gene therapy or genome editing or antisense oligonucleotide. Many of these are so-called information-based ther therapies because you're your drug is actually nucleic acids that encodes a message rather than being a small molecule or a biologic that interferes with something. Um, and then, you know, again, the FDA is really paying attention to a lot of the work that Tim is doing and rethinking, you know, how should we regulate N of one clinical trials? And it's clear that they're quite open to the idea that maybe this should be a bigger part of, of where we're going with rare disease drug development. So again, uh, the story today was so moving, and I really find Tim to be an inspiration. And in many ways, as you said, there's so much room for optimism going forward, where it's been an incredible breakthrough in diagnostics and therapeutics over the last 30 years. And you can just imagine what will come for the next 30 years. I completely agree. The uh, I, Again, I, I just can't, I can't help but, but feel that in all of the hard work that you see progressing over decades, when it's being done, it, it's not always clear what's at the end of the road. Um, but you know, people do it because it's important. You know, discovering truths about our biology, uh, building new capabilities for diagnosing and treating disease—it's a very long slog while you're building it. And then sometimes these moments arrive where, in one year, you can develop a therapy for a very sick child and extend their life, improve their life. And I guess there's, there's a saying, which is, you know, there's years where nothing happens, and then there's weeks where years happen. And I think technology sometimes advances like this and, and dovetails with, with our own understanding of our health and our ability to improve our health as a species. Thanks so much, Alex. Later in the series, we'll be speaking to Broad Institute founder, David Altshuler, and A.B. Abernethy, formerly of the FDA, and Flatiron Health. If you've got any questions for us or our guests, email furyandpractice at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dallo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wolchko, and this is Theory and Practice. <laughs>